Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran and you're listening to Deep Trouble. We're here in the studios of Main FM, and I have Mark Halloran with me. Hi, Steve. G'day, Mark. Today, it's an interview with Jessica Trisco-Darden. Jessica is a Canadian academic activist, and she's also an assistant professor of international affairs at the School of International Service at American University. It's a very interesting project she's involved with, looking at the role of women in combat. I'm interested in whether this is classified as feminist studies, yeah, I think there is a feminist element to her work because she's focusing on the book that I read of hers was around Kurdish rebel groups, which kind of have a, I suppose, a Marxist philosophy moving through them. And they recruit something like 50% of the frontline military service in active combat roles. Um, they recruit women. And women can also then be promoted throughout these armed services. And these combat groups have fought against ISIS in Syria and have been fairly effective. Can you see that there's a little bit of a contradiction between saying women can be as violent, aggressive as men and are the equals of men in every field and then saying we need more women in our institutions to soften the impact of toxic masculinity? Well, I think hypocrisy is inherent in everything to some extent. You're going so far to call it hypocrisy? Well, hypocrisy is inherent or paradox is inherent in everything. I mean, I would say that probably if you wanted to look at it, and I haven't kept track of all the ways of feminism, but when people say to me, I'm a feminist, I say, well, that doesn't really give you much insight into what they may believe. It might broadly give you some idea around ideas of equality or even equity. But a second way feminist someone like Jermaine Greer would probably have little in common with a fourth, or I don't know, is it fifth wave of feminist and people in the Me Too movement. Their ideas would be divergent in a lot of ways and they wouldn't agree on very many things at all. Like a lot of things, there's a tremendous amount of heterogeneity within the ideas within feminism, as there should be. Well, anyway, I think you listeners out there will find this a very interesting interview. Mark Halloran in conversation with Jessica Trisco-Darden. So I wanted to talk to you about your work, particularly your book, uh, Insurgent Women, Female Combatants in Civil Wars, uh, of which you're a co-author. I just wonder what the main findings of that book were. So the main findings are really that women participate in a wide variety of conflicts all over the world, and that many of the motivations that drive women to participate in armed conflict are very similar to the motivations of men. However, across these three cases, we also identify some motivations that are more specific to women. So, for instance, in the case of the conflict in the Kurdish regions in the Middle East, we find that, for instance, the idea of young women being forced uh, into early marriage is a factor driving them to participate in these conflicts as a way of avoiding that fate. 
but also is creating an opportunity for women's emancipation and their participation in a larger struggle. In Colombia, issues of domestic violence and household instability also seem to be a factor driving young women towards participation in armed groups. I was interested in the uh, Kurdish example because it seemed as though it was very much based on equality, gender equality, and that they essentially tried to get 50% of their uh, military personnel who have an active combat role to be women. And I wondered what the philosophy or the ideology was behind that for the Kurds. It's the democratic union, isn't it? That is true both of the PKK in Turkey, which is perhaps the best known Kurdish militant group, and also of the women's wing of the Syrian Defense Forces, that they really tried to get a high level of female participation. But actually, in Iraq, the Peshmerga, which is perhaps the group that many have heard referred to in the media, have significantly lower levels of female participation than the other two Kurdish groups. So what we find is that it is very much this Marxist ideology that the PKK is associated with that has really driven women's participation. And in part, women have been present in the PKK since the founding. And we argue that women's presence from the initial moment of the creation of the group as co-chairs, as co-presidents, has really allowed women to be successfully integrated throughout the structure of that armed group. So the earlier that you have women participating, the more significant leadership and other roles that you have women in, the greater women's overall participation will be in the group over the long term. I thought what was interesting is that these Kurdish rebel groups that include women to that extent, 40 to 50 percent, because they're essentially drawing from 100 percent of their population, have been the most effective forces against ISIS. I think I even read in your book that in the siege of Kobani that they reported up to 80 percent of the combatants from the Kurds were women. And it's been really interesting to see how women have been utilised both militarily um, as an actual fighting force, but also very strategically in the conflict against ISIS. So for instance, in addition to women's participation in these Kurdish groups, the Jordanian Air Force was using female fighter pilots to fly some of their sorties against ISIS in 2015. And so I think that the Kurdish groups in the Middle East in particular have intentionally put women at the forefront of the conflict in ISIS to really demonstrate that the ideology of ISIS and the type of role for women that it's tried to create and to spread is not something that is necessarily indigenous to the region and is most certainly not something that everyone in the region subscribes to or adheres to. So by putting women on the front lines in the Kurdish regions, the PKK, the SDF, and other groups have said, like, this is not what we want for our women. This is not what our women want for themselves, and they're willing to fight for it. They're willing to fight for an idea of a woman in the Middle East who is emancipated, who is strong, and who can defend her own interests. It feels like, and I think it was stated in the book, that it's a direct repudiation to ISIS misogyny. Absolutely. And I think it was intentional. 
And you'll see in a lot of the media depictions or propaganda associated with these women that it's a very intentional assertion of both their militancy and their womanhood. So there's, for example, a Kurdish pop star who produced a music video in which she's wearing fatigue, she's wearing a traditional Kurdish scarf, she's in high heels, and she is depicted as part of a force fighting against ISIS-like invaders in her village. And so I think it's an intentional strategy. It's one that has certainly got the Kurdish armed groups a lot of attention internationally. So news organizations like have flown to Iraq and, you know, interviewed the badass women of the Iraqi Peshmerga. And it's really been this successful depiction uh, in the media of these strong Kurdish women. But I think it's also part of an overall message amongst Kurdish political leaders that they are distinct, that they are a distinct ethnic group, that their culture is different, the way they treat women is different, and that's kind of evolved as part of their overall messaging. When you're talking about the Middle East region, the biopsychosocial perspective had looked at it in regards to environments that are low in resources. So you're talking about the Middle East. Traditionally, women become resources. And so it feels as though the Kurdish Marxist philosophy is a repudiation of that entire ideology. Absolutely. And I think also it's a recognition that there are alternative visions for how women can still deeply respect and participate in their local cultures and traditions and yet create their own role for themselves. So one of the quotes that we have in the book that I absolutely love is from Azima, who's a commander in the YPJ, which is the women's unit that fights as part of the Syrian Defense Forces, and it's an all-Kurdish female unit. And she talks about her role in the Battle of Kobane and argues that during that battle, the women left their fingerprint on history. 80% of the fighters were women. From the coordination team to the front line, there were women. And I think it really points to the fact that these women are agents and they are constructing their own role within Kurdish history. And I think that's really interesting to think of the role and agency that women have in creating these historical narratives and national narratives moving forward, because it's almost impossible now to talk about the struggle against ISIS in Syria and in Turkey without specifically mentioning Kurdish fighters and Kurdish female fighters. And I think that's really shaping the narrative that will emerge after this conflict. You're listening to Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Assistant Professor Jessica Triska-Darton, Canadian academic and activist. I know I'd read briefly in the book around uh, Colombia's FARC uh, who take a similar approach in terms of gender equality within their military with 40% of soldiers being women. However, I suppose the downside is that there's an incredible amount of control on women's fertility and bodies and forced abortions. I mean, do the Kurds face similar issues? Is there a downside? I mean, I think that there is always constraints that are put upon individuals who participate in armed conflict. And this is true of both women and men, that their lives are shaped 
by these kind of militant roles, but that we see those tolls being placed on women because women are obviously the ones who are primarily involved in pregnancy, in childbirth, that have to deal with reproductive cycles, that are expected socially to be the dominant parent. And in the case of the FARC, they had increased women's involvement in the group over time. So when the FARC was formed, women initially participated in the group essentially as wives of FARC fighters. They cared for children and entire families were integrated into the group. Over time, women were permitted to take on armed roles within the group. And so there is a divergence from the PKK there, even though these are both Marxist egalitarian armed groups. The FARC's position on reproduction actually varied over time. So there are many reports of women who became pregnant within the group who delivered their children and were forced to abandon those children, either leaving them with relatives or abandoning them in local villages. Over time, a very um, explicit and, you know, militantly enforced reproductive policy was adopted, which involved essentially forced birth control. And women who wanted to have children would defect from the group. And so there was this ongoing kind of tension about this policy. But what has been really interesting is that the FARC was involved recently with a peace process and tens of thousands of FARC fighters have demobilized from the group and taken part in these voluntary reintegration camps. And at these camps, many of the FARC fighters have actually become pregnant because it's been the first time that they've had their own ability to control their reproduction. And so many of those women have opted to go off what was mandatory birth control and become pregnant in these reintegration camps and others haven't. And so it's been really interesting to see how in the absence of having that birth control provided and enforced by the group, how women have diverged. I think in the case of the Kurdish groups, it's a little bit different. The social context is a bit different. I think that those groups do not condone sexual relations between men and women within the group in the same way that the FARC did. And so at the end of the day, I think there are both constraints related to military organizations and cultural constraints that are at play in shaping how women are affected by these very gendered policy decisions. For Kurdish women, I got the impression that they would be fighting because they were mothers, essentially. But in terms of post-conflict, after they leave the military, what their life is like and whether those type of different archetypes and different identities can be integrated, the mother, the wife, the sister, with the soldier? It's really interesting because actually both the FARC and the PKK are currently listed as groups that recruit child soldiers. And in part, that's because they're recruiting both young boys and young women under the age of 18. So there are many stories, essentially, of teenagers fleeing their households to join these groups, either because they had controlling parents, and I mentioned earlier, instances of forced marriage, or they just wanted a different future than their family life had for them. I think in terms of when women exit these groups, there is a difficulty because these women are doubly stigmatized. 
even in a group that is supporting a nationalist objective, like many of the Kurdish groups are, they're ultimately returning to communities that are much more traditional than the Marxist armed group that they were part of, right? So I think that a lot of these women are seen by those communities as having transgressed social norms. First, they've lived their families, they've lived with men who were not their relatives in close quarters, they've obviously participated in conflicts, and even if that conflict may be perceived favorably by the communities, it's still difficult, you know, as we face our own challenges here in the United States and elsewhere of reintegrating those who have participated in combat, it's still something that sets you as a part from the rest of society that did not participate directly in that armed conflict. And so we argue that these women are doubly stigmatized, first as fighters, and then secondly as women who have transgressed various social norms. And that really poses a challenge for their reintegration. Because for instance, you know, when we think about young women who've joined this group and ultimately want to find spouses and settle down and have families, they ultimately have to find a spouse who is accepting of the time they spent in the armed group. And in many cases, that can be found with another member of the armed group. But if they're looking outside of that group, then I think there are significant challenges that they face. It seems like the challenge is that in terms of their time within the military, they work within a nationalistic Marxist framework, which is almost completely alien to perhaps their localised religious or tribal context. And so they're caught between those two worlds. Absolutely. And I mean, none of these countries are faced with these armed groups. And in many cases, you know, the decades-long civil war in Colombia... Um, an ongoing conflict in Turkey, which is also decades long, in part because the mainstream ideologies and cultures of these countries really are in conflict with a lot of the values and positions held by the participants in the armed groups. And so there is a broader societal conflict that's going on that makes it challenging for these individuals to be part of that broader society. Where we see this being bridged, however, is that when there is some type of peace agreement or peace accord. So, for instance, in Colombia, the peace accord that was struck between the Colombian government and the FARC has enabled the FARC to transition from, you know, what the United States has listed as a terrorist group or what we see locally as an armed rebel group into a active political party within mainstream Colombian politics. And so there are these openings for transition, um, typically around negotiated settlements of civil wars that exist for some groups. And so I think that's, that's helpful in two senses. One, ultimately, you know, these conflicts shouldn't hopefully not go on forever. But by you know, sticking it out and reaching a negotiated settlement, there is some hope for greater political integration and greater social integration. You're listening to Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Assistant Professor Jessica Triska-Darton, Canadian academic and activist. I was interested also in the role of women, which differs greatly within Salafi jihadist groups such as ISIS and Al-Shabaab. 
Could you talk a little bit about what the role of women is within those groups? Absolutely. And so I think the, the most important thing for us to keep in mind when we talk about female fighters is that there is wide variation across groups. So we've been speaking mostly about two kind of Marxist groups that have participated in civil wars, the FARC and the PKK and its Syrian counterparts. And then when we're talking about Salafi jihadi groups, again, there's a wide range. So first we have ISIS, which is, you know, arguably the best known of this type of group at the moment. And ISIS used women in a very particular way. Women did not participate in combat roles. Instead, women were enticed to join ISIS through messaging that dealt with living life as a true Muslim, helping create a caliphate here on earth, things that appeal to their sense of identity as a woman. As a result, this messaging and ISIS's broader gender ideology really focused on women's roles as wives and mothers. And I think there has been much made of the jihadi bride label, but I prefer actually the term ISIS wives because it really focuses on what their functional role was within the group. They were brides to become wives and mothers. And so when women arrived as single young women predominantly to the caliphate, they were given a list of men to choose a husband from, and they promptly chose a husband and lived as a wife, providing services to that individual, cooking for them, supporting for them, engaging in sexual relations with them, many times bearing children for them. And it was a very functional role that helped propagate the group's ideology and fulfill its message of building a caliphate here on earth. At the same time, in addition to this primary role as wife and mother, women were also used as recruiters and propagandists and fundraisers or financiers. So women did take on a variety of roles. They were also teachers and nurses. They were also involved in policing other women through morality brigades and other related roles. And so there was a lot of complexity, even if, you know, in Western media, jihadi bribe became the dominant narrative. From your work and the other work that I've read by other political scholars, is that the media predominantly portrays these women as sort of naive? I think it is both the media and now that many of these women have been detained in Iraq and Syria, it is also the women. Uh, it has historically been a very successful strategy for women to plead innocence and to plead naivete. And so we saw this after World War II in Nazi war crimes trials. We saw this with the international criminal tribunals after the genocide in Rwanda and the wars of the former Yugoslavia. Women have consistently used ignorance as a defense. And I think we're seeing that now with ISIS women as well, that they were just housewives. They didn't know what their husbands were doing. And yet when you see some of the interviews that were done, for instance, with Shamina Begum from the UK or uh, Huda Muftana, who traveled to Syria on a U.S. passport, 
they do really play up this motherhood angle and this wife angle. And yet they'll say passingly references to egregious crimes. So for instance, in one interview, Shamina Megum mentioned seeing a bin full of severed heads. So she never saw any actual violence, but she saw the carnage associated with it is her current position in recent interviews. So the problem with this is that we know that women were active in traveling to Iraq and Syria. In many cases, women also followed their husbands. And so that is very true for women from non-Western countries, that their husbands decided to join this conflict and that they followed and traveled with their children um, because that's culturally what you would do as a wife. And so I think that there are many pathways for women into ISIS and a array of roles that they could take on in the group, even though those roles weren't as extensive, for instance, as what we find in other armed militant groups. I think what's interesting about your work and others is that it emphasizes the role of family and women in particular in terms of spreading propaganda and radicalization. And so rather than women being the victims of that, they're often seen as being more active than the men in terms of the process of radicalizing their husbands or other people in their family. I think it is absolutely true that women can both be victims and victimized by armed groups and at the same time be active participants in them. So Boko Haram is an excellent example of this. And Boko Haram is a Salafi jihadi group that operates in northeast Nigeria. And it has been well known for mass kidnapping. So the whole bring back our girls movement that Michelle Obama and other celebrities were involved in was really about Boko Haram's mass kidnapping of girls in Chibok. They also had a mass kidnapping in Dabchi. And essentially... These women were forced into the group. They were absolutely victims. They were picked up from their schools by the hundreds. And we have seen from data compiled by researchers, including Hillary Matfis, that Boko Haram's use of women and girls as suicide bombers saw a massive uptick after these kidnappings. So essentially, these women became expendable weapons for the group. And Boko Haram, that's how it differs from other groups like ISIS, is the active use of women in military positions as suicide bombers. Yes. And so they are renowned for their active use of children and women as suicide bombers. They actually made up the majority of Boko Haram's suicide bombers in recent years. But to be really clear, women are not active armed combatants in Boko Haram. So for instance, you will not see a woman with an AK-47 on the front lines fighting for Boko Haram. They're used exclusively in these suicide bombing roles, which I think speaks a lot to women's agency within the group. I think it is absolutely true that some of these women are participating voluntarily as suicide bombers, but the vast majority are not. And so it's really important to think about how groups are strategically using women, whether that's in armed roles or in unarmed roles as support. I was reading an article, I've been in contact with a, a political science PhD, Kiriloi Ingram in the University of Queensland. 
and she was talking about ISIS using they'd released inside the Khalifa video series, which was now portraying women in active combat roles. And so there was some contention around whether these were actual women or whether it was men dressed as women, um, a kind of call to arms for men to join ISIS. I was just wondering what you thought about that, because essentially what her contention was that it didn't really matter whether in the video series it was men or women, it's that they were now using the image of women in fighting positions. I think what is really interesting about that dynamic is how it interacts with our understanding of masculinity and the way in which women's participation in armed conflict can be used to shame men into participating. So I agree in a sense that it's irrelevant whether it was men in burgas or women. It's been interpreted in several ways. First, it's a sign of desperation that the situation would be so dire that they would require women to participate. And secondly, as again, this shaming tactic, this call to arms saying, look, men, we're having to resort to our women. Where are you? What's very interesting is that we see a similar dynamic actually operating in Ukraine amongst the pro-Russian rebel groups, where you have a really prominent rebel leader, Drilkov, make this call saying, like, look, we need women to fight for us. It would be great if we could get the men, but where are the men? They're, they're not showing up. So, OK, we're going to take these women to fight. You also see in ISIS propaganda, essentially, women going on Twitter and other social media and trying to actively shame men, saying like, look, I'm here, I'm with this group, where are you, the men need to show up. And so I think that when we start looking with a a gender lens at a lot of these developments, we can see some of the complexity involved in the messaging and recruitment strategies of different groups. But then I also wondered whether it would just mean that the group would change, that maybe women would, over time, just take active combat roles, at first through desperation and then essentially because it was serviceable and it worked. I guess it worked for the Kurds, didn't it? I think it's something that can evolve over time. So if I were to think of an interesting historical parallel, it would actually be women's participation in the Red Army during World War II. So many people are not aware of this fact, but actually the Soviet Union's Red Army had extremely high levels of female participation during World War II, out of necessity, as you mentioned. And women wore fighter pilots, flying sorties, the most famous brigade perhaps to come out of the Red Army in World War II were the Night Witches, who were female fighter pilots who flew sorties against Nazi Germany. And women were named Hero of the Soviet Union. They set some of the records for the Soviet Air Force at that time. And yet, when you look at women's participation in, say, the Russian Armed Forces now, it's relatively low. And it's in these kind of non-prestigious roles, let's say. And so I think that there is definitely a truth that women's participation is born out of necessity, but it's also not something that has a clear trajectory, right? So I mentioned earlier that if you have women participating early on in important leadership roles, that can set you up for greater female participation down the line. But it's not necessarily so. 
And so I would say in the case of groups like ISIS, ideology really plays an important role. And so unless that group's ideology is going to evolve in a way that justifies women's increased participation, I don't think that it will be a dominant trend. I think it's very hard to imagine a group that embraces the separation of women as part of religious practice that focuses on women's kind of domestic and family roles as a central part of its gender ideology that will see a lot of female participation. And so the parallel there really is Nazi Germany during World War II. National socialism was an ideology in which women did have a very prominent role, but they had a prominent role as mothers of the Volk and stewards of, you know, German purity. And they were to have many children with a certain type of man to produce a certain type of German future. And that was a really important role within National Socialist ideology. But at the end of the day, it meant that Nazi women couldn't participate in armed conflict in the same way because their social role wasn't defined as permitting that. And I think ISIS has a similar approach to women. So I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't expect women to have prominent roles as fighters in Salafi jihadi groups in the future because that ideology is so constraining. But I would expect women to take on these roles in exceptional circumstances. I think what's important to touch on, we only touched on it briefly before, but was that these Kurdish rebel groups that uh, have a Marxist ideology and have up to 40 or 50% women's active participation in uh, frontline military conflict. Why are they more effective than other groups that predominantly have men? So I... I'm not sure we make any claims about battlefield effectiveness. I actually think that that claim is very difficult to substantiate, in part because we simply lack the data, right? And one issue is that most of the information that we have about particular battles comes from either the groups themselves or from foreign correspondents, and both of those parties have their own interests in reporting out information. So that being said, even though I wouldn't stake a claim about their battlefield effectiveness, I do think that they're playing a very important role in these armed conflicts, absolutely, but also sending a much broader message about the fact that those groups represent a whole population, that they represent both men and women, and that all of that population has been mobilized into the conflict, right? Mm. And that's a similar argument that I try and make with regard to Ukraine. So why are women more represented in Ukrainian rebel groups than they are in pro-government forces? I think it's in part because there is this broader effort to mobilize all of society, and that means also mobilizing women. My impression was from reading, I may have gotten the wrong impression, was that these groups, and we're talking about the Battle of Kobani, that these particular groups with the uh, almost equal representation of women were effective against ISIS. And some of the claims that were made in the book around that was because if you are sampling from 100% of the population rather than 50% of the population 
that you will get people as soldiers who are more ideologically committed rather than if you're only sampling from 50%, which is just the men, then some men will be really strongly ideologically committed and other men will not be. They might be absconders. And so that was what was making a difference. Absolutely. And so I think that that is true for the success of the armed group overall, right? right? So that these groups persist longer and are able to avoid being crushed by government or other armed groups because they're very committed to their cause. I just don't think that shakes out at the like individual battlefield level. Like I oh. wouldn't say that, that they were more successful in a particular military engagement because of that. And the inverse would be that we would be making the argument that ISIS would have been more militarily successful if it had had female fighters. Right. And I don't think that that's the sort of claim that we're making. So I, I would say that when we're making those claims, we're talking at the group level yes. and not at the like military engagement. Sort of the overall war, essentially, because they were driven out. Yes. They were driven out of Kobani. They were driven out of uh, Baghuz by the coalition of international forces and these groups at the ground level. I also think, you know, there's this interesting question of in this book, we clearly only address armed groups that succeed in some capacity, right? They're important enough, they're successful enough for us to talk about. But there are also many armed groups that form and fail, right? They're crushed, people defect, they're not able to hold it together long enough to participate in a conflict for us to even know about them. And so I do think that one thing that distinguishes groups that recruit women as fighters is that they are able to craft a compelling enough message to also recruit from that population. You're listening to Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Assistant Professor Jessica Triska-Darton, Canadian academic and activist. The other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, in relation to the repatriation or the potential repatriation of the women of ISIS. Um, and some of the issues that may come along with that. I mean, we, you touched on Shamima Begum. I think she left uh, to go to Syria. Was she from the UK? Yes. Uh, to Syria, and she's 16, so she's essentially illegally a child. There seems to be a, a tremendous amount of complexity, which we touched on before, between the idea that this may be, maybe not specifically in her case, but in other cases, a child soldier, but also someone who's a propagandist and someone who is part of morality brigades and, and equally as culpable as men in, in war crimes and things like that. What is the complexity around this? How do we understand this and what do we do about repatriation? So part of what I struggle with regards to this specific question of what to do with ISIS affiliates is that ultimately there are many times more ISIS affiliates who are Syrians or Iraqis or Libyans, right, yes. who were local recruits to these groups. And so a lot of the international attention and international resources have really been focused on foreign terrorist fighters and others associated with the group. So with that caveat that I think that we really put a disproportionate amount of attention on this issue, I do think that it's important to recognize that 16-year-old boys also traveled to join this conflict. 
And so, again, what really gets to me is the way that gender is interacting with age and other factors here to really color our understanding of individuals' agency. And so if we're going to call Shamina Begum a child soldier, we also need to apply that label to males of a similar age who made similar decisions. And I'm fine with that if we're doing that in a consistent fashion. I do think what is a really complicating factor here is that many of the young women who joined the the group did become mothers. And in that particular case, it is extraordinarily tragic that this young woman has lost three of her children so early on in life. And as as a mother myself, I cannot even imagine the devastation associated with that. That being said, she made a conscious decision to travel with false documentation to a war zone. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of moral and legal challenges that Western countries are facing now. There's also been an Australian woman, Zara Duman, who traveled and is currently in Syria, detained uh, in one of the camps being run by the Kurds. And so what do we what do we do with these women? There have been primarily three legal options. One has been allow them to face trial in these countries. That's been the approach of several countries, including France, uh, with regard to Iraq. So the Iraqi government was holding trials um, and sentencing many of these women affiliated with ISIS to death. None of those executions have been uh, carried out because there was a kind of international human rights outcry. And now those court cases are being appealed through the Iraqi legal system. Approach number two has basically been to say, well, we're just going to pretend this problem doesn't exist. I would say this has been the dominant approach taken by the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom uh, and also Australia have acted to strip individuals of citizenship and essentially leave them stranded in Iraq and Syria, making the argument that, oh, well, if someone has a legitimate claim to British citizenship and they can make their way to a consular official in Baghdad or in Jordan, yeah, then we might issue them a passport if they have children, we'll do a DNA test if they can prove that they're related to someone in the UK who's a UK national, then we'll repatriate those children. But really, we're not going to do all that much to find these people. Approach number three has been to actively identify men, women, and children and bring them home. And so Germany has been forward-leaning on repatriating children, in particular the Russian Federation, in particular uh, Republic of Chechnya, has been very aggressive in bringing its people home. But also smaller countries that you wouldn't think of, like Kosovo and Tajikistan, have been really active in repatriating their individuals. So it's actually been the wealthy Western countries that are the laggards on this issue. Right. One of the differences that I picked up was that the men tend to go to detention centres and the women go to refugee camps. So there's that difference in terms of gender, regardless of involvement with the the terrorist organisation. I would say that it is perhaps a bit of a stretch to call these camps uh, in Syria that are being run by the Kurds as refugee camps. They're not UN administered. They are patrolled by armed guards. They are restricting the access of civilians to those individuals. I mean, at the end of the day, 
they are uh, secured camps run by non-state actors that yes. are not intergovernmental organizations. That being said, yes, clearly they've separated out the men from the women and the, the conditions for the men are arguably much, much worse than for the women. I do think, though, that the broader issue of how to hold these women to account and how to develop a justice mechanism has not received enough attention. And so I think we are ultimately seeing this fundamental approach where the women and children affiliated with ISIS are by and large being treated as civilians and not as individuals who may have been involved in terrorism or war crimes. And I hope that more attention is paid to kind of differentiating between all of these populations. Rather than taking a naive approach, essentially. Yeah, I don't know if it's naive, strategic, or simply lazy, but I do think that we need greater consideration and perhaps even just a better understanding of women's roles in these types of armed groups. So yes, we can successfully reintegrate them, but that we can also hold them to account for any crimes they may have committed. I wanted to talk about the responses because it does seem like a wicked problem. I mean, we've got a humanitarian problem here. So you've got women and particularly children in a camp like Al Hol. It's been flooded with that 72,000 people. Living conditions are abhorrent. So there is some sense that if you're a person that belongs to Australia, that there's some responsibility to take that person back. But even when people are brought back, it seems like there's a tremendous amount of complexity around the legal system because their foreign fighters have been involved in a foreign conflict and there must be all sorts of problems around security for the country in terms of running a trial around that and in terms of proving guilt. Absolutely. And I think that the foreign fighters associated with ISIS have really pushed our understandings of, of reintegration and rehabilitation and also international law. So, for instance, every prior instance of a post-conflict rehabilitation or reintegration program has occurred in the context of, of a civil war, or at the very least occurred in the context of individuals being reintegrated in a country where there was an active armed conflict. In these cases, the Western ISIS fighters and affiliates we're really talking about people being reintegrated into societies where there was no conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Australia was not at war with ISIS in any meaningful sense. And so the idea that it then has to reintegrate individuals who chose to travel halfway across the world to participate actively in this conflict is a policy challenge, but it's also a a kind of challenge of the imagination in that what does it take to make this individual part of our social fabric again? I also think, though, that there is kind of a broader question of who is responsible for these individuals leaving in the first place. So a lot of arguments have been made that there was a, a Western Europe problem where individuals from minority groups were not successfully integrated into those states. They weren't made to feel like they were true French citizens or true, you know, Dutchmen. And so as a result, they were kind of marginalized. And when ISIS put out this call, it appealed to them. That narrative really places the blame 
on Western countries for this phenomenon rather than on ISIS as a terrorist group. And so I think we have to kind of problematically challenge that. Clearly, there were issues of integration. There is this challenge of rectifying, you know, nationalism and minority participation and rights that we're really seeing throughout the world right now. But in many instances, too, you know, looking especially at the women, some of the most high profile cases of women who traveled to join ISIS, you know, were women who converted. So there was a Canadian American woman who was formerly a Mennonite and converted to Islam and then traveled to join ISIS, right? That's clearly not an issue of minority integration in Canada. And so I think we really need to look on an individual case-by-case basis. And in doing so, that will really help us determine what justice can be achieved in a particular case, but also help us to isolate some of the factors that drove these individuals to participate in the conflict. I do think the evidentiary burden is extremely challenging. And I do think that the evidentiary burden is extremely high. And that's why many countries have decided not to pursue prosecutions aggressively. I mean, in Canada, it would shock me if any of these individuals ever received, you know, sentences in excess of three years, because it's extremely difficult under that particular judicial system to achieve successful prosecution of these cases. You're listening to Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Assistant Professor Jessica Triska-Darton, Canadian academic and activist. It seems to me that the repatriation then stands as a risk for places like Canada because the people return potentially with the same ideological bent that they left with and that this can be underestimated. So I don't have access to any classified information regarding this. So I'm speaking purely from, you know, my personal position as a researcher And I actually think that, you know, Canada has been a haven for terrorists for a very long time. There's a huge segment of the Canadian population that was involved with financing the Tamil Tigers. There um, now are all of these links to ISIS that have emerged. There also were former links to um, Al-Shabaab amongst the Mali population. So I think that there is this general challenge that has emerged in Canada that needs to be addressed. But I actually think the risk is not so significant to individuals in the countries where these fighters came from. I think that that threat has been overblown. And the real threat is either one that they will inspire future generations of foreign terrorist fighters, or that ISIS will re-emerge elsewhere in the world and these individuals will travel to join the group again. And so that's why you've actually seen the United Kingdom and other countries create legislation that allows them to declare no-go zones where there will be automatic prosecutions for individuals attempting to travel to designated areas as a way of preventing individuals from joining these groups in the future. Is part of the problem for Canada its progressiveness and its tolerance that it's become affiliated with an increase in terrorist organisations or that planning on soil? I think that across a number of countries, there has been a struggle 
to balance an embrace of multiculturalism and an embrace of diversity with integration into some common sense of belonging or nationhood. And I don't think it's necessarily a Canadian problem, but I do think that there has been this struggle to create a sense of common identity and common bonds while embracing and respecting and valuing diversity. And I think that we're really at a kind of fever pitch moment for that challenge. And ISIS really exemplified one manifestation of what can go wrong, but that the rise in far-right violence and anti-Semitism is another manifestation of that same underlying challenge. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we do make the argument that women can be committed ideologues, absolutely, and they can be compelled to join these conflicts because they believe in the group's ideology, they believe in the group's message, but that there are myriad other reasons why women join these conflicts, and that by reducing it all to ideology or to victimization, we really miss the vast majority of women's experiences participating in armed groups. Oh, there was one other point. Professor Noam Chomsky talks about the drone strikes that increased under Barack Obama used for yes. assassination. So there was the assassination of a Muslim cleric, Anwar al-Laki, who is an American uh, citizen yeah. and obviously Osama bin Laden. And he talks about that the Geneva Convention stipulates that people have the right to a fair independent trial. But I wonder if that was because it is so hard to prosecute these cases, essentially. And the risk is that once you put people on trial, particularly once they're repatriated, that you, you can't get a prosecution. So I have two points on that issue. So one is what has been really interesting is that the United Kingdom has actually strategically stripped its citizenship from individuals for terrorist offenses prior to them being targeted for drone strikes, in part because the United States killing a U.S. national in a drone strike looks really bad, and the United States killing a Somali national in a drone strike looks less bad in the eyes of international public opinion, even though the same individual is being targeted there. I think that the risk is with giving some of these very high-profile individuals trials is that those trials can then become a soapbox. And so we really saw this with the uh, international criminal trials surrounding the former Yugoslavia, where individuals like Milosevic, but also Mladic, people who were really integral to the crimes against humanity and war crimes that were committed during those conflicts, were essentially given an ongoing TV soap opera drama. They engaged in long diatribes and political uh, engineering. And at the end of the day, you know, many individuals feel that that justice wasn't served as a result. So I think that these are interesting questions to study as a researcher, but ultimately the decision making behind the scenes remains opaque. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. So there it was, Mark Halloran conversation with Jessica Trisco-Darden. Mark. Yes, Dave. 
I was thinking that there was possibly another reason why the Kurds really celebrate their women in the frontline combat forces as being feminine. The benefit of that is that it makes it very clear to outsiders, say in the West, as to who are the good guys. Because, you know, the Kurds are always trying to get Western support. You know, they've been kicked from pillar to post, the poor Kurds. I suppose they're projecting themselves as their values being somewhat more comparable to the West. We know, we talked about it from the interview, that the philosophy that underlies these Kurdish rebels' forces is essentially a Marxist philosophy. They're influenced by Marxism, hence the idea of equality. In terms of uh, Jessica's book, one of the things I took away from it was that there is a sort of a, an ideological and practical element to this. So the ideological element says that if you sample from 100% of the population for your military, you are going to get the people who are most committed to the cause. And so for women in this particular society joining these rebel forces the army offered them a different type of life in terms of a career. If they were to remain within like a Kurdish tribal village, their life would be very, very curtailed in terms of their rights and things like that. So the the army offered them lots of rights in terms of equality. And from the army's perspective, then they get people who are very committed soldiers. Whereas if you only took men, then some of them will be thinking, I don't really want to fight for this. I might desert or I'll try and, you know, get out of committing myself to the cause. Mm. So that's the theory, I think, that was my uh, less than succinct rebuttal, uh, if it was a rebuttal at all. Mm. I've got a question for you. Sure. We have these instances of where women have been encouraged to join frontline combat forces mm. that happened in the, in Russia right. in the Second World War. Oh. But what can often happen is after the conflict, women are forced back into the home and then the permanent defence forces go back to being comprising mostly of men. Mm. Do you have a theory about why that happens? Do I have a theory around why Yeah, why, well, that why is it that women are allowed this freedom when things are really desperate? Basically, you know, they're, they're sacrificial lambs mm. to the slaughter, Yes, but there's no permanent improvement. Um, I think we'd come back to what you were talking about before, is that it, it, perhaps it's just opportunistic, which is mm. obvious. And then, of course, the, you know, in the case of the Kurds, if, it, if that did occur, and I, I seem to remember there may have been somewhat of an issue, although the women that returned to villages obviously came back with new skill sets and respected and, and held a different place, and, and, and also they had a different career progression. But if that was to occur, it's because you would return to... Firstly, it's opportunistic of the military forces, so it comes at a time of desperation and needing bodies in the front line. And then bodies, when, yeah. when the uh, yeah, <laughs> and then when uh, the time of crisis is over, the underlying cultural values take over, and so we return to the status quo. Mm. Right. Next week, Stephen Croucher is going to be here on Deep Trouble. Yes, Professor Stephen Croucher wrote an article for The Conversation about the psychology of hate in the wake of the Christchurch shootings. So join us next week, next Monday at 4pm for another episode of Deep Trouble. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Steve.
Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.